0: We are continuing our studies on the book of Daniel and we've now come to chapter eight. And this is, as we've read, is another wonderful, wonderful chapter of the prophetic visions of Daniel. And I have to admit I'm feeling overwhelmed at having the task to expound the importance and the significance of this chapter. This chapter is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Prophecy. We get an insight into the thinking and the workings of the angels and we see God's plan with the earth is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled, but it's according to God's timetable. God's ultimate plan with the earth will be fulfilled according to the time period that God has decreed. And we've also read that God sets up kings and God removes kings. Now, we know the the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. However, from chapter 2, verse 4, to to the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel was originally written in the Aramaic language. But chapter 8 returns back to the Hebrew we might not have noticed that chapter 8 in the original has reverted back to the Hebrew language and this is very significant even though we can't discern this when we read a translation from chapter 2 through to chapter 7 Daniel's theme was Gentile domination and God chose to signify this by recording his word in Aramaic but now Daniel is returning to the theme of the Jews in their land. And the language in the original has changed back into the Hebrew. Chapter 8 focuses on the land of Israel and is downtreading by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And though the vision occurs in Babylon, Babylon is not mentioned from now on in Daniel's visions. Now Daniel begins chapter 8 by giving the time period when he saw the vision as being in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now Belshazzar reigned for six years in total before the kingdom of Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, as we considered in chapter 5. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon who saw the writing on the wall that God has numbered his kingdom and finished it. And God finished the kingdom of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, which is represented by the ram in this chapter. The vision Daniel received now is therefore halfway through the uh, total reign of Belshazzar. Again, that is very significant that Daniel 8 immediately gives us this context in what Daniel was about to see. Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, was halfway through his reign. So in verse one, we read that a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now, a paraphrase of this sentence is, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared unto me. This is therefore a direct follow-on vision from the earlier one Daniel received in chapter seven. Now, if we turn back there, We read in chapter seven, verse one, that it was the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. And therefore, as brother Andy mentioned, it's two years earlier than the vision uh, that we read in chapter eight. We read in chapter seven that Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed, which strongly applies that Daniel was asleep when this dream occurred. In chapter 8, verse 1, Daniel now received visions while he was awake. There's no mention in chapter 8 of Daniel having a dream like in chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 8, verse 2, we just read, Daniel saw a vision. Looking back to chapter 7, and verse 3, we read that Daniel saw four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse one from another. And then Daniel witnessed the history of the western section of the Roman Empire. Chapter 8 now details the future of the eastern section of the Roman Empire. The beasts in chapter 7 were diverse, one from another. In chapter 8, Daniel only sees a ram and a he-goat. And both chapters have an emphasis on the growth of the little horn, In chapter 7, it was the growth of the false prophet in the West, based in Rome. In chapter 8, it was the growth of the military power in the East, based in Constantinople. So if we turn back to chapter 8 and verse 2, we read there that Daniel saw in the vision that he was in Shushan the palace. And as we know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer in Shushan the palace, which was the center of Persian rulership, as we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, and Dinesta and chapter 1, verse 2. And now some commentators believe that Daniel was actually in Elam, being Persia, not just having a vision, he was there, as, as his most natural reading of this verse indicates. And well, he may have been there on an errand of the king, as we see in verse 27 and I rose up and did the king's business. However, I believe the weight of evidence is that Daniel was only there in vision. See, You see, in these verses, we have emphasised that Daniel saw. In chapter 1, the word appeared in the Hebrew is the same word as saw. So we read Daniel saw six times in these verses. A vision appeared unto me, Daniel, after that which I I saw unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision. And it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision. And I was by the river of Eli. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw. We can see the emphasis. That Daniel had a vision. He saw. He saw. And in his vision, he was in Shushan, the palace. Now the word palace in the Hebrew means a castle or a fortress, something impenetrable, seemingly invincible. Daniel was in the fortress which was made by man to withstand any enemy and foe, and it testified to the strength of man in defying and ending to his dynasty. And the irony is that Daniel was about to witness in symbol The utter destroying of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. We read there that Daniel lifted up his eyes. It was going to be a vision from God. He looked up and there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And as we know, we are left in no doubt that the ram Daniel saw represented the Medes and Persians as we see in verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Now historians write that instead of crowns, the Persian kings wore rams' heads made of gold. Archaeologists have have also unearthed coins with per, uh, coins from Persia with a ram's head imprinted on them. And so, if we turn up uh, the contemporary prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. We see a parable spoken by Ezekiel where where he describes rams. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 34 and we'll read verse 17. And we read there, And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. It's interesting that Ezekiel mentions rams and he goats, the two animals seen by Daniel in chapter eight. And here, uh, here we read that rams represent oppressive rulers, those who tread down with their feet, leaving nothing for the more vulnerable flock, as we read in verses uh, 18 and 19. Seemeth a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture? but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. So the rams have no regard for others. They not only eat, but they tread down what's left over, leaving nothing for the other cattle. They foul the water. We read of an arrogant, self-centred, self-willed beast. And so turning back to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 3, we read there that the ram stood before the river and it had two horns. And so the two horns uh, represent the the dual monarchy of the Medes and the Persians, ruling in the kingdom. And we read there that the two horns were high and so horns symbolize power and the power of the medes and the persians far exceeded uh, that of the babylonish empire the two horns were high and so the word high in the hebrew is the hebrew word gorboa and according to strong's means elevated powerful and arrogant and so in the hebrew The word word appears in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, If you'll please turn that up in your Bible. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 15. And so the context here is in the last days. And in the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. But let's read from verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 2 for context. For the day of Yahweh of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall. And so the word high in verse 15 uh, the high towers, is also gorboa in the Hebrew. So if God's house will be established on the top of the mountains, it follows on that everything that is high, from, which is from the kingdom of man, we brought low and humble before the power of God. And the word gorboa also occurs in chapter 5, verse 15. If you turn over a few pages to there. and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. So the word lofty here is the Hebrew word "goboa," And again, we read of the lowering and humbling of what is high, being the eyes of man. And as we read in verse 16, but Yahweh of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. God who is holy will, be, will alone be exalted, in judgment, will be exalted in judgment upon that which is high and lofty. And so if we turn over a few more pages to chapter 10 and verse 33, we read there, Behold, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, shall lop the bow of terror and the high ones of stature and the, sorry, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. So it's actually the word haughty in this verse, which is the Hebrew word Gorboa. So again, in a few chapters, Isaiah has this theme of the pride and the haughtiness of man being humbled by the judgments of God. So that which is high and lofty in man's estimation is soon humbled when faced with the judgments of God. And Daniel was about to witness the pride of the Medes and the Persians, utterly humbled by the decree of God that the Grecians were going to be the next world empire. So turning back to chapter 8 and verse 3, we read of the two high horns. So the ram represents the dual kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and the horns represent two distinct powers of the kingdom. They were both high, but as we see in verse three, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. At the beginning of the dual empire of the Medes and Persians, It was the Medes who were the ancient and dominant power. The Persian Empire was of little historical political consequence. However, a ruler by the name of Cyrus became king who would become more prominent until finally the empire of the Medes and Persians became Persian dominated, which is what Daniel saw when the higher one came up last. The Median kings reigned for only two years, whereas the Persian kings reigned for 209 years. So Cyrus enjoyed a rapid rise during the 10 years of 549 to 539 BC. And this is what Daniel saw in verse 4, where he saw that no beasts might stand before him. The Persians, they came from the east which is why Daniel saw the ram push westward and northward and southward, but not eastward, because he came from the east. Cyrus thrust westward and northward into Asia Minor, and he bypassed Babylon, only to capture it later and take the lands to the southwest and southeast. In the west, he pushed against Babylon, Syria, and Asia Minor. In the south, Cyrus conquered Egypt, and in the north, Cyrus conquered the Armenian and Scythian nations. These nations Cyrus, Cyrus subdued and incorporated into the Persian kingdom. No other force of the day could have stopped Cyrus the Persian. Daniel saw this in verse four where he wrote, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great, the ram became great. Now a ram, as we know, it's, it's not a, a particularly fierce animal. Uh, a ram itself is very vulnerable to other beasts of prey. But this ram became great. It was such a fierce ram that no beast of the day could withstand it. It was great because it did whatever it wanted. And so it was again the prophet Isaiah who prophesied of the power coming from the east. Isaiah prophesied of Cyrus, who would pass judgment on Babylon. So if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 41, and we'll read verse two. Again, remarkable prophecies. Hundreds of years before they occurred, Isaiah prophesied of Cyrus. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 2, we read, Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to, to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as a dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow. So Isaiah saw God and righteousness stirring up a power from the east, now it's not that Cyrus was righteous or morally upright. It is that he was selected by God and God's righteousness to judge the Babylonians. We read that he, he called him to his foot, which is a rather awkward translation. If we, if we read the ESV version, it's, it's a very makes it a lot more in, uh, interesting and relevant. The, the ESV translation is, who stirred up? Uh, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. And so we can visualize the ram trampling kings underfoot and not allowing any to stand before him. And as we read in verse 3, He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. And so we see the prophet's prophet's emphasis on feet. Another translation translates this verse as, He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not travelled before. Isaiah also prophesizes of Cyrus and likens him to a ravenous bird in chapter 46, verse 11. If you'll turn there. We read in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 11. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executed my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. It was Cyrus, the king of Persia from the east, the horn which grew higher, who was called by God to execute his counsel. Here we read that he was called a ravenous bird or as it it is also translated, a, a bird of prey. Cyrus extended the territory of the Persian Empire as directed by God. But let's turn back to Daniel chapter eight and verse five. We read here in verse five, and as I was considering, Daniel knew that this vision was significant. He considered, he was pondering the significance of this fierce ram that that no one could withstand. He wanted to know what it meant but it was still in the future for Daniel. And so he he didn't immediately understand what it meant. And behold, and as I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. The ram from the east faces formidable opposition from the west for the first time. again, We're not to guess what the goat represents as we see in verse 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. This goat was a symbol of the Grecian empire. The notable horn between his eyes represents the rulership of the first king, Alexander the Great. Verse 21 calls the horn a great horn and Alexander has gone gone, gone down in history with the title Alexander the Great. Now a goat was a very appropriate symbol for the Grecian or the Macedonian people. 200 years before the time of Daniel, the Greeks were called the goat's people. And we'll read from Adam Clark's commentary where Adam Clark writes, Behold a he-goat. This was Alexander the Great. And a goat was a very proper symbol for the Grecian or Macedonian people. Bishop Newton very properly observes that. 200 years before the time of Daniel, they were called Egeidae, the goat's people. The origin of which name is said to be as follows. Caranus, their first king, going with a multitude of Greeks to seek a new habitation in Macedonia, was advised by an oracle to take the goats for his gods. And afterwards, seeing a herd of goats flying from a violent storm, he followed them to Edessa and there f- fixed the seat of his empire and made the goats his ensigns or standards and called the place Igi or Igeia, the goat's town and the people, Igidae the goat's people. Now apparently, Alexander the Great called his son, Alexander the Goat, or some say he was named the son of a goat. The he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. Europe and Greece are west from the Persian Empire. Alexander the Great only set his sights on world dominion. Our margin has a rendering of none touched him in the earth. Alexander came with such speed that normal obstacles did not hinder him. He moved so fast that his feet appeared not to touch the ground. The contemporary English version translates this as, I kept on watching and saw a goat come from the west and charge across the entire earth without even touching the ground. And Alexander conquered the civilised world in less than 12 years. The horn between the eyes of the he-goat is described as notable. And according to historians, Alexander made himself extremely conspicuous, both by the brightness of his arms and the respectful countenance of his staff. He was also quite noticeable by the large white plume on his helmet. So this conspicuousness did not escape the Persians whose major objective became to kill Alexander when they came to war, as we see in verse six. In verse six, the he-goat came to the ram that had the two, two horns. In BC 334, the notable horn between the eyes of the he-goat, being Alexander the Great, was chosen at Corinth to lead the United Greek States against their Persian overlords. He declared war on Persia, determined to destroy its power. The prize for the victor was world dominion. The he-goat ran to the ram that Daniel saw when he was standing before the river, and it was to receive the fury of his power. the, The word fury literally means heat and means hot indignation, wrath and rage. In verse 7, we read that he came close unto the ram and he was moved with choler against him. And the word choler means to be bitter. The word is used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, where we read the Egyptians made the Israelites' lives bitter with hard bondage. It is also used in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, when Naomi says, call me Mara, for the Almighty have dealt very bitterly with me. It's also commonly translated as grieved or vexed. So it's interesting that we read in verse verse 2 that Daniel was standing by a river and it was the battle of the Granicus River in BC 334 that was Alexander's moment of revenge for the earlier great cruelty the Persians inflicted on the Greeks uh, when uh, uh, when they had invaded them. It was the first of three major battles the Grecians had with the Persians. The Greeks were bitter against the Persians. Persia was still powerful, but it was in decline, and her troops were no match for the well-trained, furious Grecian soldiers. In the Battle of the Granicus River, Alexander the Great commenced the attack and his army was only a fifth the size of the Persians, but that didn't deter him. He moved across the Hellespont to the River Granicus, behind which the Persian commander had entrenched himself. Both armies stood across from each other in silence. Alexander had lined his forces on the western banks of the river. Alexander's second-in-command, Parmenion, suggested crossing the river upstream and attacking at dawn the next day, but Alexander attacked immediately, and this tactic caught the Persians off guard. The Persians responded with a hail of arrows and javelins. They were intent upon attacking the Greeks and the Macedonians in the water where the footing was slippery and difficult. The the Persian weaponry of light javelins was no match against the Macedonians' 15-foot lances. Amid the sound of trumpets, Alexander and his men plunged into the water and went up the opposing banks diagonally. And upon arriving on the opposite bank of the river, the fight turned to -to hand-to-hand confrontation. And although suffering from a a number of casualties, Alexander began to gain the advantage and many of the Persians began to to retreat. Now it is true that historians disagree on, on the fine details of the battle However, it's believed the total casualties for the Greeks were between 300 and 400 men and the Persians had roughly 1,000 cavalry and 3,000 infantry killed. Look for the word and in verse 7 to see how God shows that the Persian Empire was so utterly destroyed by the fury of Alexander. He smote the ram and break his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Alexander went south and captured Tyre after a long siege and then invaded Philistia and occupied Egypt. He then went north and captured the important Persian centres of Babylon, Susa and Persepolis. And so there were three major battles between Alexander and the Persian Empire, which he won always against overwhelming odds. The battle in Granicus in 334 BC, in Issus in 333 BC, and in Guagamala in 331 BC. In the end, the Persian Empire was smitten, broken, and stamped to the ground. Alexander was only in his 20s, but was clearly a genius in the art of strategy and warfare. In 15 years of conquests, Alexander never lost a battle. His methods of warfare are studied by military strategists to this very day. We read that in verse 8 where we read, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And there is one Hebrew word for waxed very great, and it means to grow or to be magnified. And the commentators are divided on the meaning, with some suggesting that it was just Alexander's head that grew very big. The Net Bible translates the first sentence in verse eight as, the male goat acted more arrogantly. Alexander destroyed the magnificent buildings of Persia and yet gave himself to debauchery. Continuing verse eight, we read, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. At the height of the power of the Greek empire, Alexander was struck down with a fever and died at the age of 33 in Babylon. Now how he died, we don't really know. Some believe Alexander was poisoned. Some think it may have been from alcoholic liver disease. And another theory is he may have died from typhoid fever which was common in Babylon. And Alexander's death was so sudden that when reports of his death reached Greece, they were not immediately believed. And Alexander had no obvious or legitimate heir. His son, Alexander IV, was born after Alexander's death. According to Diodorus, Alexander's companions asked him on his deathbed, to whom would he bequeath his kingdom? And his reply, to the strongest. (laughs) <laughs> the, the horn of Alexander was broken and his successor would not come from his bloodline his older half-brother Philip Aridaeus and his son Alexander Fourth, they were both murdered and so verse 8 continues the great horn was broken and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven The empire was divided up between four generals of his army. Lysimachus ruled over parts of Thrace and parts of Asia Minor in the north. Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece in the west. Seleucus took Syria and the territory to its east. And Ptolemy took control over Egypt in the south. They took control over the four winds of heaven, meaning toward the four quarters of the world. And we read in verse nine, and out of one of them came forth a little horn. Out of one of the four horns came forth a little horn with humble origins. But then we read the horn waxed exceeding great. The Roman Empire rose after conquering the Ptolemy kings, one of the four divisions of the Grecian Empire. And though it was very small at its beginning, Yet, it was very great at the zenith of its power. Now we read of the rise of the little horn in chapter seven, verse eight. Turn back a page, we'll read that verse. Earlier Daniel said, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. However, the horn in chapter eight did not have the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things, as we read here. But both horns represent the same empire, being the Roman Empire. In chapter seven, the horn is the Roman Empire in its ecclesiastical manifestation with its eyes and mouth speaking great things in the West. The horn in chapter eight, verse nine, is Rome in its military manifestation in the East. Chapter 7's horn is based in Rome. Chapter 8's horn is based in Constantinople. But both were originally part of the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar saw Rome, represented by the two legs of iron, being the east and the western divisions. In chapter 7 and 8, we also have Rome in these divisions. Chapter 7 showed the western division of Rome, and chapter 8 is the eastern division of Rome. So turning back to chapter 8 and verse 9, we read that this horn waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. The Romans immediately went toward the south and conquered Egypt, a province of their empire. They went toward the east and also conquered Syria and made it a province. Then the Roman Empire went toward the Pleasant Land, being the land of Israel. And the word pleasant has the idea of being prominent. This was a significant point, that the Romans took control over the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why Daniel gives us the details which he has done on the world empires. They took control over the prominent land. And as we know, the Romans were the ruling world empire in control of the land of Israel in the days of Christ and was responsible for scattering the Jews over the face of the whole earth. And the same word translated pleasant is found in chapter 11, verse 41. If you turn over a few pages to there... We read, He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. So here, the words translated pleasant land in uh, chapter 8, verse 9, is translated the glorious land. And both times we read of the glorious land being conquered, and the time of its glory still to be in the future. But turning back to chapter 8 and verse 10, we read, "'And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, "'and it cast down some of the hosts "'and of the stars to the ground, "'and stamped upon them.'" So the little horn of the goat, being the military power of the Roman Empire, became exceedingly powerful, even to the host of heaven. And the margin is probably correct that it should be translated against the host of heaven. So in these verses, we have an emphasis of the little horn being initially initially insignificant, waxing exceeding great. It was so great that it could even fight against the host of heaven. We're left in no doubt of the power of this little horn. There are no bounds to what the little horn would not attempt to conquer even the host of heaven. In verse 11, the horn then magnified himself even to the prince of the host. So we can see the progression of the arrogance and might of the little horn. And so God uses the phrase, the host of heaven, to here to describe the people of Israel. They were the people of God, but because of their disobedience, Rome was allowed to overcome the host of heaven. The iron might of the Roman Empire suppressed the Jewish people. The stars represent the leaders, the priests and the Levites. And they were ultimately cast out of heaven and stamped upon. In verse 7, the goat stamped upon the ram. And here we read again of a stamping, this time upon the Jewish hierarchy by the little horn. The Romans stamped upon the Jews. And we remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled during the Olivet Prophecy. Our Lord had this verse in mind when he could see Jerusalem trodden down by the Roman Legion. Now, if we refresh our minds on what Daniel had previously said about the strength of the iron, let's turn back a few pages to chapter 2, verse 40. We read about the fourth kingdom. Daniel 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Daniel said the iron will break in pieces and bruise. And the Roman military broke in pieces the Jewish commonwealth and bruised it. It wasn't destroyed forever, but it was bruised. And severely broken. So, turning back to John chapter eight, sorry, uh, Daniel chapter eight, verse eleven, we see there was no limit to the arrogancy of the little horn. It magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And the word "prince" in the Hebrew means a leader, commander, or ruler. And the ruler of the Jewish people should have been God himself and his representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, who were the rightful king of the Jews. The Romans were in power when the Jews delivered Jesus to be executed by the Roman method of crucifixion. So if we turn to John chapter 19, and we'll read verses 10 and 11, we'll see the Roman representative in power, Magnifying himself against the true Prince of the host. We read there. Then said Pilate unto Jesus, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee have the greatest sin. So Jesus corrects Pilate that even though he was in power, even though the Roman Empire was in power, the power came from God. God had allowed the Romans to act exceeding great, even against the hosts of heaven. And now the Roman power was magnifying himself, even to the prince of the hosts. God would very soon punish the Jews for their wickedness, for corrupting the worship of God, and for most importantly, crucifying our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said, He that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. So we turn back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. And we read towards the end of his vision. Daniel says there in verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The little horn, which waxed great and arrogantly, would destroy the temple and cause the Jews to be scattered to the four corners of the earth. When the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, it was no longer possible to offer the morning and the evening daily burnt offering. But even more so by the power of the Romans in crucifying Christ, the symbols of the law, the offerings, and the sacrifices that were taken away by the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we read verse 12, we read, And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And so the margin's probably more correct. And so if we read from the margin, we read, and the host was given over for the transgression against the daily sacrifice. And this is referring to the Jewish people who were given over to the persecution of Rome because they completely defied the laws of God. Daniel clearly tells the Jews that it was purely because of their transgressions which was the reason of Rome's triumph over them. And our paraphrase translation, verse 12, says, Because of rebellion, Yahweh's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. As we just read in John chapter 19, Jesus said, He that delivered me unto thee has the greater sin. And so we'll then conclude our Bible class tonight with the end of verse 12, where we read and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practised and prospered. Ecclesiastically, as well as military, the truth was cast to the ground. Out of the Roman Empire formed the Roman Catholic Church, and the truth was cast to the ground. The Roman Catholic Church is renowned for its prosperity. The latest estimation of its wealth was $30 billion. It indeed practised and prospered. Rome began as a pagan military power in opposition to the Jews and then Christianity, and afterwards as a paganized false Christian power in opposition to the truth where it has indeed prospered. And that was the end of the vision which was granted to Daniel. And next class, we'll, we'll continue looking at this fascinating chapter where Daniel and the angels themselves were given further instruction to the meaning, the time periods, and the consequences. Thank mm-hmm. you.